what was the last courageous thing that you did? Like, what was the last courageous thing that you did? And it wasn't because you didn't have fear. It's because some way and somehow you were able to overcome your fear. So for me, the thing that pops into my mind initially, and you're going to kind of say, hey, you need to do some more courageous things. Like, that's it. But for me, it's, it's one of the most courageous things I've ever done. And the most courageous thing I've ever done was my initial meeting of my wife. And I'll tell you why. Because I had a friend and actually a mutual friend of both of us that was after me for months of like, you got to meet this girl, you got to meet this girl. And I had no interest in meeting this girl. And this is going to sound kind of offensive, and I've had several people talk to me already, so it's why I preface on the front end. Um, if this is you, I mean no disrespect. But the thing that made me really resistant is, number one, I'm not going to meet some random girl. I've never met her. And we ended up meeting actually on a blind date that I finally relented and went to, and that was way out of character for me. It was way out of character for her. Um, but the thing that caused me to be resistant was when my friend told me, and he shouldn't have told me this, that she was a Christian school teacher which I love Christian school teacher. Um, God loves Christian school teachers. I wasn't sure that I would love one. And I immediately had this idea in my mind that I was going to show up at Starbucks and she was going to have an ankle length jean skirt on and she was going to be rocking Crocs and there would be a polo shirt in there somewhere and a bun in her hair. And I just thought, no, Jesus loves you, but I'm not sure that I'm going to love you. Like there's no way I'm taking the step um, to meet you on some random blind date. But I did. Like, I had the courage, I'm just going to do it, and we met at Starbucks, and we talked for about three hours that night, and here we are. The rest is history, and we have three kids, three kids later, because she finds me wildly attractive, and it all started, it all started because I, I took that step to just be courageous. Like, I'm just going to do it, and it's changed my life. So, so here's the thing as we've been in this series. Here's what we've talked about. Now, this is the fourth week is basically what Jesus meant when Jesus said, this is what it's going to look like to follow me. And if you know anything about the New Testament, or if you've been here over these weeks, when Jesus touched down on the planet Earth, he introduced this brand new approach to God that changed everything. He basically touched down on a planet Earth to go, everything is going to come down to not what you've experienced maybe in the past, not your temple version of religion, but the whole following Jesus thing, the whole loving God thing, the whole test of spirituality that honestly 2,000 years later we're still trying to catch up with. It all comes down to this. When you understand God's love for you, you're going to love God by loving your actual neighbor, like your actual maybe 100 yards away from you. And it all comes down to that. In fact, Jesus one time said that from now on, in first century religious culture where it was all about the temple, all about going to the temple, all about praying prayers, all about interacting with the priest. One time Jesus said, listen, from now on, your measure of your love for God is not going to be about what happens in the temple. It's going to be about what happens around the table. That vertical religion, which is characterized by, I can check some stuff off a list, I can read some stuff, I can attend some stuff, but then I can go my way and feel great about my relationship with God, but ignore people around me. And Jesus says, no more. From now on, your measure of your love for God, what it means to be spiritual, is not about this temple system where you can read and pray and attend and feel like you're great with God, but ignore your neighbor. And in fact... Your measure of your love for God is going to be authenticated by your love for your neighbor. That invisible relationship with God 
It's going to be made visible with how you treat people in relationship and the people that God has placed in your sphere of influence. And no longer do you just look here because you cannot follow Jesus and forget your neighbor. You cannot do some kind of temple ritualistic thing but not do anything around the table. And so I'm changing the game in terms of what it means to follow me and maybe what you grew up with in terms of religion. This is what it looks like. And this takes you way beyond Sunday school version of Jesus, but this is what it all comes down to. Now, here's the thing, as we've talked about this now for the fourth week, is that for many of us, we don't really argue with Jesus' words. In fact, we've said that even if you don't believe in Jesus, this whole love God by loving your neighbor resonates with you. Like, that's what it should be about. And yet we find ourselves resisting, not because we don't believe, but because of this one thing here. The biggest obstacle to all of it is just this, fear. We fear because there, in some cases, there's a lot to fear. We fear being vulnerable. And come on, isn't this true? Every relationship at some level requires vulnerability. We fear maybe the differences of another person. And Jesus has called us, hey, I want you to seek out the individual who's nothing like you. And there's a lot of fear around that. And maybe it's fear about what it's going to cost me. Because if I enter into relationship, it's going to require me to give something up. I fear a bunch of other things that just happen in relationship, but my biggest obstacle is not that I don't believe Jesus for a lot of us. My biggest obstacle is I'm just afraid. There's a lot to fear. And here's the other thing. If we take this to another level in terms of what Jesus is inviting us into to go, okay, I don't want you to just hang out with your neighbor. I don't want you to just have a drink with your neighbor. I don't want you to just gather around the pool. All of that is powerful and it's meaningful. But I want you to be willing to follow Jesus to the extent of you're willing to be open about why you follow Jesus, about why you love Jesus, about why you began a relationship with Jesus. And when we talk about that and intentionality in relationships, that gives us fear that is off the charts. Like that takes us to a whole nother level. And here's the thing. This is the most repeated command in the scriptures. More than any other command, it's simply this, by Jesus himself. Fear not. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to retreat in fear. And here's the reality. If you look at history, if you look at the New Testament, that the only reason that we're here, the only reason that over this next week, millions upon millions of people are going to gather in the name of a Jewish carpenter out of Nazareth. The only reason that the church is scattered across planet earth is because there was an initial group of followers who were willing to step out and be courageous, not because they didn't have anything to fear, but because somehow there was something that catapulted and moved them beyond their fear, and they were courageous. And they only had two things, as we've said in the series. They had the knowledge that Jesus wasn't dead that they saw him die, and then he walked out of a grave alive, and so they served a God of resurrection. And come on, when you know you serve a God of resurrection and you watched him come back to life, what do you have to fear? And they had this one simple command. They didn't have a full Bible. They had scraps of the Torah. They didn't know the theology that some of you knew. And no, they just had this one thing. If you want to love God as you understand God's love for you, you go and love your actual neighbor, and it all comes down to that. And it began to change things because they understood that even in their Greek and Roman culture, that even the Romans who despised them and didn't like them, they were going to live forever somewhere. They understood that every single individual, and I think that's true of us today in 2018, it was true of them then, is that every single one of us have had a moment where we stared up at the ceiling and we've wondered, 
what do I do with my inconsistencies? Like, what do I do with my past? They understood that every single individual on planet Earth struggles. There's questions that they need answers to. And they understood that hope and life and rescue is only found in Jesus. And somehow it moved them and catapulted them beyond their fear. And they had a lot to fear. And here's the thing. I think at some level we've lost that. And I think, and actually I know that 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 could be recaptured. That we could be characterized differently in our culture, that we could think differently. One of the most powerful pictures of this is in Acts. And if you know the scriptures, you can turn there. Or if you've got an app, you can go to media and then sermon resources. But in Acts, it'll be on the screen. There's an incredible story of the, like, the 30-year history of the church after Easter weekend. So Acts, which is a little book in the New Testament, is all about what happened after Jesus walked out of a grave alive and then said, listen, you guys are the carriers of this message. And not just a message, you are carriers about this event, this thing that you've seen that's happened in history. So I want you to go. And so in Acts, in a particular story, there is Jesus' initial followers, and specifically Peter and John. And Peter and John were cowering on Easter weekend, and then they became bold proclaimers of, again, not what Jesus taught, about what they saw, which was Jesus come back to life. And so there's this one incident where Peter and John are going to the temple, and they meet a guy on the temple steps who's been lame from birth, just doesn't walk, hasn't been able to walk. There's no cure for him. In that culture, they even had this weird belief that somehow God was cursing him. So there's all kind of social baggage. And so Peter and John come upon this guy on their way into the temple after Easter weekend. And they are telling everybody they can about what's happened. And so there's that guy and he's like, I need some money. And so they did what most Christians do. They gave him a track instead and like, no, I got to go into the temple. Um, That's not what they did. They stopped. And actually they did say, we don't have any money to give you, though we know you need money. But we can one up. We can do one better. We want to tell you about what's happened. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe you know this, this story, they heal this man. This man who is on the steps, who cannot walk, suddenly can walk. And everybody has are at this place where Peter and John have their attention. Everybody's looking going, okay, this guy has been there like every day for months upon months. And many of us, because it's a small village, we know where this guy lives. We know he's never been able to walk and now he can walk. And so there's this huge uproar. And so Peter and John go into the temple and suddenly there are people that are gathering everywhere. And Peter's like, this is a great opportunity to preach a message. Because everybody's listening, everybody's leaning in, everybody's wondering how this guy who couldn't walk now can walk, and all eyes are on us. And so Peter begins to preach, and he preaches again about what he's seen and about what has happened and what it means because it validated everything that Jesus said about his life. And it says that 5,000, this is a legit day, 5,000 men beyond women and children, we don't know the number, 5,000 placed their faith and their trust in Jesus. Well, at this point, there's a huge uproar because Peter and John are doing some uncomfortable things. They're in the temple, but in some ways, the Jewish leaders feel like they're undermining the temple because Peter and John are preaching a message that says, hey, the temple's great, but there's a whole new deal that's arrived to planet Earth. That now through Jesus, you don't need to bring any sacrifices here any longer. Jesus is the final sacrifice. And you don't need a priest because now um, you have direct access to God, so you can kind of skip the middleman. 
And you have been invited into a relationship with him. It's all about relationship. It's not about this thing that you attend. It's not about these boxes that you check. And so the Jewish religious leaders were in an uproar about the fact that in their minds, they're undermining the temple system. And then beyond that, if that wasn't enough, Peter was constantly calling out the religious leaders. Like every time Peter would preach a message, at some point in the message, he would point to the guys in the back of the room and like, hey, by the way, you guys, you were here, eye contact, I'm talking to you, everybody look, you guys, you were here a couple weeks ago and you are the ones that actually had Jesus crucified, which was not popular. And so there they are, they preach this message in the temple after healing the lame man, thousands come to know Christ, but there is incredible tension among religious Jewish leaders and Rome. And so they throw Peter and John in prison. And Peter and John spend the night in prison. And then they are taken out of prison the next morning. And Peter, this is unbelievable, Peter begins to preach again. Because he's like, okay, I still have everybody's attention. So this is a perfect opportunity to do what just got me thrown in prison last night. And Peter begins to preach, and at the end of his message, he just got out of jail. He still smells like jail. Here's what Peter says in conclusion among all of these religious leaders and all of the people who've gathered at the temple in Acts 4.12. In conclusion, Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name, meaning the name of Jesus, under heaven given to mankind whereby we can be saved. Well, here's the thing. We constantly want to remove every obstacle possible to people connecting with Jesus. Sometimes Jesus is his own obstacle. Because Jesus is like, listen, I know this is offensive. I know this is not popular. I know some of you are going to really struggle with this, but I'm the only way. The only way to God is through me. The only name to where you can find rescue and salvation is through Jesus. And Peter's like, no, this is the only way. There is no one else. There is no other name but Jesus. And it is the only source of rescue and hope and salvation. And so there he is preaching this message. And then in verse 13, the man who they healed somehow comes into the temple and everybody's looking at him. In verse 13, it says, when they saw, meaning the spiritual and religious leaders, when the leaders saw the courage of Peter and John. And again, here they are. The guy who couldn't walk can walk. Peter and John have just been thrown in jail, but they get out of jail. And then Peter just keeps preaching again. And he's like, I cannot shut up about this. Because there's no other name where people can be saved. And so the religious leaders start to marvel at the courage of Peter and John and realize that they were unschooled, didn't graduate from junior college in Jerusalem. They are unschooled. They are ordinary men. And I love this. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And can I just say this real quick? And, and this wasn't originally even kind of in my notes, and it's a little bit off the subject for a second, but I think it's so important. And I don't know who this is for today. It may be you're watching online, you're listening on radio, you're in the house, but but this is what you need, and it's something I wish somebody had given me a long time ago. You just need to know this, that if God has placed something in your heart, and if you ever choose to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus, Jesus will do more with your life and beyond your natural ability in a way that you could never realize when you decide you're going to obey him and you're going to follow him. It will take you way beyond what you are naturally capable of. And I just want to tell you, if you're maybe in the house or you need to hear this somewhere, if God God has placed something on your heart, if God has put a dream in you, if there is something 
something that you feel like God is calling you to do and he wants to do it through your life and you are enamored with what you lack, you're enamored with somebody else's gift, you're enamored with somebody else's personality, you're enamored with all of the things that others have that you feel like you don't have and yet this dream has been placed in your life, I just want to tell you, do not ever let anyone tell you that God can't in your life. And if God has placed a dream in your heart and a desire in terms of how he wants to use you, there is no amount of personality deficiency or language deficiency or knowledge deficiency or theology that can keep God from doing what he wants to do in your life. And in fact, he is an expert of taking unschooled, ordinary men and moving through them to do something that is beyond their natural capability. So at the end of the day, nobody looks at them and goes, they are amazing. They look at them and go, how is this even possible? And the person who gets glory is not you, it's Jesus. And so here they are, unschooled, ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man, this is the religious leaders, who had been healed standing, I mean, just think about this. Yesterday he couldn't stand and today he can stand. Yesterday we were looking down at him, now eyeball to eyeball, he's in the temple, he's probably running around. He's healed and he's standing and He's here with us, and so there was nothing that they could say. Because what are you going to say? What are you going to do? And I imagine, you can read the next couple of verses for yourself, but I imagine the religious leaders take Peter and John kind of by themselves and whisper, because they don't want everybody to hear, to go, hey, come up, Peter, lean in. We don't want everybody to hear this. There's a huge crowd. I mean, they're flowing outside of the temple, so we're going to let you go. Because if we try to arrest you a second time, there's going to be some kind of big, maybe a riot's going to happen because nobody can deny this guy couldn't walk and now he can walk. Yesterday he couldn't, today is his second day walking. So there's nothing we can do, so we're going to let you go. But I'm telling you, Peter, John, lean in. Shut up. Stop talking about this. And don't come into the temple talking about this. And stop blaming us for Jesus' death. So we're going to let you go but shut up. And then this is my paraphrase, but Peter is basically going, nope. Like, I'm not going to shut up. I can't shut up because this is not about something that I believe. This is not about Jesus' teaching. This is about something we saw, something that happened. Jesus was dead and now he's alive. And I'm telling you, in him there is hope, even for you, even for the Romans, even for the Jews, even for the Greeks who want nothing to do with us. There is hope through Jesus. And I cannot shut up about this. And so Peter and John head back to a little home where a bunch of other followers and disciples are meeting and they're praying together. And they've heard the account, at least in some veiled detail, about, about what's happened to Peter and John. And so Peter and John go back there. They join all of these followers in a home, in a living room, and they begin to pray. They have a prayer meeting. And as I read this, here's what I always think of. This is the question that always rises to the surface for me. At this point, if this had happened to me, if this had been the scenario of I preached, I was jailed, I got out, I began to speak again, they tell me to not shut up or the consequences are going to get worse, and I'm going back to a little prayer meeting, what am I going to pray for? What are you going to pray for? What's going to be the subject of that prayer meeting? For, for a lot of us, I know what we'd pray for. We'd pray for protection. We'd pray that God would put some hedge of protection around us. I don't even understand that, but it's something we pray for. 
We'd pray that God somehow protects us and watches over us. And then we'd probably go and try to hire a security guard because we're going to be the answers to our own prayers. And we're Americans, so we want to get things done. And so I'm going to pray for safety and security, and I'm going to hire somebody. And I'm, God, I'm asking that you would watch over us, and God, you would protect us. What would you pray for? Here's what the first century followers of Jesus who had just experienced this whole thing, here's, here's what they prayed for. And I think this gives us a little window into why we're here, into why you even know the message of Jesus that for some of you has impacted your life in a profound way. When they heard this, this is the report of Peter and John who are rushing back to that living room where everybody is about to pray. When they heard this, all of the disciples and followers, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And this is the first recorded prayer of the first century church. And they began praying this way, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In essence, they're just acknowledging, hey, God, as we, we come to you right now, we just want to acknowledge the fact that you flung the stars into place. You set the earth on its foundation. You have spoken the planets in, in existence and you are over everything and you are in control of everything and you're not surprised by anything. You are the sovereign God and Lord of creation. And then verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. And then they quote in their prayer this Old Testament passage, this Old Testament prophecy that predicted hundreds of years before that what happened on Easter weekend was going to happen, that the Messiah who ultimately would be Jesus is going to suffer and he's going to be persecuted. And so they, they quote that Old Testament passage in prayer when they say, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together. Against the Lord. This is the Old Testament prophecy about Jesus and against your anointed one. And then, verse 27, as they're praying, they kind of move out of this Old Testament prophecy and prediction and they move it into their current circumstances and they pray this Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city. Like what was predicted by the Old Testament prophets, it happened a few weeks ago. We saw it go down. It happened in this city. It happened exactly as was predicted. And in verse 28, or actually into verse 27, and they conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And then verse 28, check this out. This is so powerful. And they did, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, all of those who were involved in railroading Jesus into a false trial and ultimately being persecuted. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Meaning nothing was flying out of control. Jesus was aware all the time. In fact, Jesus willingly went. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. And in that moment that was the darkest moment for the world, it was the epicenter of God's greatest work in the world. And that nothing was being taken by surprise. Nothing was random. God was in control and aware the whole way through. And then verse 29, here's where they get to the part of, okay, so God, we're just acknowledging all of this, and here's, the, here's what we want you to do for us part. This is the, here's our prayer request in light of everything that has just happened. God, this is what we need you to do. We need you to answer this prayer. What would you pray for? Here is their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats. 
and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And I have to imagine there's somebody in the prayer meeting who's looking up while everybody else has their heads bowed and eyes closed because there's always that one guy, right? And you can pray with your eyes open, but there's got to be one guy in the prayer meeting who's kind of taken back and looking up while everybody else is probably on their faces praying because it's a desperate moment. He's got to be thinking, that's what you pray? Like, I don't think we need to pray for this. I think this is what got you in the situation that you just came out of. I think you've got the boldness thing down. Because you were told not to preach and you did it anyway and you were thrown in jail. And then they got you out and told you not to do it again and you did it again. And here you are and there is an incredible threat to your life if you continue to do this. And you're in this room praying for boldness. I think you are already bold enough. Can I just ask you this question? Have you ever prayed for this in your life? Is this a part of any prayer meeting that you've ever participated in? Has this been a part of of any interaction where you're about to move into a conversation or into a place or into an environment and you're like, God, I just, I don't know how this is going to be received. I don't know this is going to go well. I don't know how I'm going to be looked upon, but just give me boldness. Have, Have you ever prayed for that? And I'm not talking about boldness for a job interview. I mean, that's, that's a worthwhile prayer, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, God, give me courage to ask her out. That's a different kind of boldness and courage. I'm not talking about when you have to go into your seven-year-old to discipline them, and you're kind of like, I'm a little afraid of you, and so God, I know they're only seven, but give me boldness. I'm not talking about that. Have you ever prayed for boldness with the name? Have you ever prayed for in a conversation or an interaction or some prompting, you just know God's leading you and you're like, God, I just, I I know this could cost me and it probably will. It may cost me a business deal, it may cost me a relationship. Would you just give me boldness with your name? See, this is why Jesus was so brilliant. The night that he was in, uh, in an upper room and they had no idea really what was about to take place in the coming hours. It's why Jesus was so brilliant when he said, listen, guys, don't ever forget this. It's all about to change. And if you want to know what it means to follow me, if you want to know what it means to love God and love Jesus, if you want to know what this thing is all about, I'm going to boil it all down. Love God as you understand God's love for you and go love one another the way that I've loved you. Go love your neighbor the way that I've loved you. And then a few hours later, he died. And he did it willingly. And all of his guys on the end of Easter weekend knew what that meant, that that's how we're supposed to love. That's how far we take this. This is how extreme this is. And so in that moment, in that room, at at that night before Jesus was going to be crucified, what he's saying is, this love that I'm introducing to the world, don't you ever believe that this is soft. Don't you ever believe that somehow that this is weakened or it's watered down faith. No, no, no. Everything hinges on this. And in that love and in the name of Jesus, there is power and there is something supernatural. And it will take you beyond what originally or ordinary, ordinarily you are willing to go. This love has the power to change everything. And it's why every single day of our life, we need to encounter and be reminded of Jesus' reckless love. Because here's the reality, either your fear ultimately is going to drive out love, or love and Jesus' perfect love is going to drive out your fear. One time John, as he's writing all about Jesus' life, says this, there is no fear in love, 
but perfect love, like the love of Jesus, drives out all fear. And when you encounter that love, it will drive out fear. Or if you don't encounter that kind of perfect love, ultimately fear will drive out love. It's why you've seen marriages that have been disintegrated and at the root of it was fear. It's why you've seen adult relationships with children and parents somehow just fall apart because at the essence, there was fear that moved them to the place where they couldn't have relationship anymore. And so Jesus says, listen, I want you to follow me into this and don't you ever think this is watered down. This will take you beyond where you want to go and farther than you want to stay. And this kind of love, when you encounter it, it has the ability to move you to a place where your fear is driven out, where you are given courage beyond what is natural. This love is not weak, but it is costly. When Jesus said, listen, guys, I want you to love others the way that I'm showing you to love. And then when he went to the cross, it validated and it authenticated and it revealed to all of them that this love, it's not weak, but it is costly. And it means, if I can just real quick say this and we'll move on. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to take Jesus seriously, it is always going to involve risk. If you are going to really take Jesus seriously, it is going to involve you moving to a place in your life at some point along the way where it's going to require boldness. And in fact, Jesus says one day, listen, do you want to know what real life looks like? Do you want to experience your purpose? Do you want to experience life to the full? If you want to find your life, you've got to give yours away. You've got to follow me into the risk. You've got to follow me into some situation where it requires boldness. And by the way, safety is a mirage and an illusion anyway. But this is what it means to love me. This is what it means to follow me. And can I just say this in love? It, because for so many of us, we're in a place in Western American Christianity where we are so void of risk, we are so prone to comfort, and we are in a place where we are so bored with our faith. And we think changing churches is going to solve that, so we switch every two years. And we think another Bible study is going to solve that. Or we're looking for that one song that's just going to do something, and we're going to have this emotional high that's going to move us forward in our relationship. And none of it works because Jesus is telling all of us, you cannot follow me in the comfort zones. You cannot move into Western view of American Christianity where it's safe and it's comfortable because the front lines of following me is going to require risk. It is going to cost you, but I'm also telling you that that is where you will find purpose and that is where you will find life to the fullest. You were created for that and you were made for that. And so there those guys are. And they are huddled in a living room with a bunch of other disciples. And they're praying. But they're not praying for safety. They're praying for boldness. And then they pray something that's even more extreme. And they say this in verse 30, toward the end of this prayer, God, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Have you ever prayed for that in your life? Like, no, I'm Baptist, so I don't ever pray that kind of prayer. 
Whatever your version of this, have you ever prayed this? And this, this verse and verses like it are so misinterpreted. I don't have time to talk about all of that. But have you ever prayed your version and what this looks like in our context? Have you ever prayed, God, do something specifically in the relationships and the people around me and the people that you've called me to? Do something that is unmistakably you. In the context of what we're talking about in this series, like for all of us, we have that one person. There's that one individual. It's your adult child. It's maybe a parent. It's a friend. It's somebody you live 100 yards away from. And and we don't believe this, but we do believe this, where every once in a while doubt will kind of invade our lives where we think, I I think they're too far gone. I don't know if they're ever going to encounter this. I don't know if they're ever going to turn in the direction of Jesus. I don't know if this could ever be restored. I don't know if this could ever be reconciled. And in this, these disciples in that room are going, God, there is nobody who is too far gone for you. There is no Roman. There is no Jew. There is no Greek that is beyond the reach of your grace and your saving. And so we are asking in a desperate situation, and we have no leverage, that you would stretch out your hand. And that you would do something miraculous where only you could get the credit because here's what we understand. We understand what Paul would write later, that we are carriers of the name of Jesus. We understand what Paul would write to the Corinthian church, that we are messengers of reconciliation. That for some reason you've placed us in this place. And we are with our lives to let everybody know because we're messengers of reconciliation that, hey, do you know you can be reconciled to God? I know you're a Roman. I know you had a part in his death. Do you know you can be reconciled to God? I know you're Greek and you believe in Zeus and Jupiter, but do you know that you could be reconciled to God? Do you know that God has removed every obstacle to you having a relationship with him other than your decision to say yes? And there is nobody who is too far gone for rescue and salvation. And so God, do something crazy through me to heal and to save. Have you ever prayed that? I think that if we did, in our context, God would do something beyond what is ordinary and beyond what is natural, and God would move to do something in the hearts and lives of people and in families and in neighborhoods and cities, and the only explanation on the other side of it is God. One of the things that that has produced an an angst in me, an angst that I'm thankful for, but something I've wrestled with and I pray for, and I'm not there yet, but I'm pleading with God, is is a little statement I read in a book probably about 20 years ago. I was a freshman in college, and the little book was called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, written by a guy by the name of Jim Cimbala. And right in the middle of the book, there was this, this idea that he dropped that wrecked me in the best possible way, and he just said this, that I despaired at the thought of my life passing me by without seeing God move greatly on my behalf. And these guys are in that room going, God, do something that's beyond us. Do something in their lives. Change their hearts, but do something that on the other side, the only explanation is you moved, you invaded, your Holy Spirit showed up, and something has taken place that has gotten the attention of everybody around us. And the only recognition, the only thing that we could attribute it to is that you've moved in, that you've done something that's beyond us to heal and to rescue and to save people. And then they get done with the prayer meeting. And they walk out of that house. And you can go read the text for yourself of what happens next. But Peter goes 
to doing what he's done the whole time. He doesn't listen to any of it. They've just gathered and prayed for boldness and courage and for God to do something miraculous. And so he goes out and begins to do what he had done before. He begins to do what got, got him thrown in prison. He g- begins to do what was, he was reprimanded for. And he just begins to proclaim the name and the rescue and the salvation that's found in Jesus. And he begins to proclaim not what he believed, but what he had seen just a few weeks before. And he told everybody that he possibly could. And because they had warned these guys, they decided the second time that they weren't going to put them in prison. They were going to up the ante and hopefully quiet them and shut their mouths forever. And so they decided to whip them. And you probably know the story. You've seen some lame portrayal of it. But in the first century, they would have whips that were lined with glass and steel and rock. And they took Peter and John, and again, rather than putting them in a dungeon, hopefully this would be the thing that would shut this up and shut them up forever. And so they began to whip them and rip the flesh off their back. And the glass and the shards of steel and rock would would literally disfigure them. So from after that moment, everybody who would see them going forward would always identify them as a criminal. They would always identify them as an enemy of Rome. They would always be recognized and branded by their scars. And so they are whipped and they have the flesh torn off their backs and they are bleeding, in some cases almost to death. And then the text says that Peter and John are left to go. And as I read this and think about me and think about what I would do in that situation and how I would react, how we would react, I think the very thought of this would have ended the Jesus movement right there. I think that the very thought of this would have moved the Jesus movement to be stopped in its tracks and you wouldn't be here and we wouldn't know the name of Jesus other than a prophet and teacher in the first century and the whole thing would have died if there would have been even the threat of this happening. They're whipped, they're released, and in Acts 5.41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin Rejoicing. What? Like seriously, how how is that even possible? How how do you get to that place? How, How could you react in that fashion? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, after they had been flogged, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. What the heck happened to us? What the heck happened to me? What the heck happened to you? What the heck happened to our churches? That once upon a time, it was seen as the greatest privilege in the world to be a carrier of the message and the name of Jesus. Once upon a time, it was seen as the greatest privilege in the world to be found worthy of suffering for the name. 
And the reason is because they were so plugged into the reality of what so many of us believe and know, and that is that that, that name is above every other name. And that this is not to be offensive, but the scripture says that one day, whether you believe in this moment or not, there is going to be a day where every single knee is going to bow and every single tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And that in that name, and this is what they believe, that there is hope and there is healing and there is restoration and there is salvation and rescue, but it is only found in that name. And they believed what we believe. That that name is greater than every other name and that that name has the power to overpower any of the names that you've given yourself. That that name is greater than the name on your door. That that name is greater than the name on your business card. That that name is greater than the name on any marquee. That that name is greater than the name of your political party. That name is greater than the name of your branch of military. That name is greater than the name on your diploma. That name is legit as it is. That name is greater than the name of your child's most recent accomplishment. That name is greater than every single other name. It's greater than the name on your bank account. It's greater than the name on your favorite guitar. It's greater than the name on your clothes. It's greater than the name on your shoes. It's greater than the name of anything that you can imagine from your catalog to anything else that you stack up, that that name is above every other name, that that name is greater than every other name. And yet, we have sacrificed more for those names in most cases than we've sacrificed for the name, the name of Jesus. And as I read this and as I allowed this to just absolutely wreck me this week, the place that I was led to, and I don't know where you're at, was to just, just go, God, I need to repent. And I need you to change how I pray, and I need you to change how I view things, and I need you to move me to a place that is way beyond me, and I I just want to move to a place where I am not so ridiculously afraid in the safest place in the world. And I want to some, at some level, at, at my own version of this, is just take baby steps to be where those first century followers were to go, God, give me courage. God, give me boldness. God, do something in me in terms of where you're leading me and to the people that you are leading me toward. And don't, don't, I'm not praying to be an idiot. I'm not praying to be obnoxious. And if you are listening or watching or wherever you're at, if you've ever been in a relationship with a Jesus follower and you felt like a project or you felt that somehow you are less than, I just want to apologize on behalf of Jesus followers. That we are to move in the direction and love people because they are made in the image of God, not just because they believe what we believe. And so God, give me boldness, compelled by your love to love the individuals a hundred yards away from me. And I just need your courage to be able to do it. Is that even a thought for us? And so what, what if somehow we could recapture that as an individual Jesus follower and as a church? Here's what I know. We are in a culture right now, if you're listening to me and, and you live in the United States of America, if you're in the West, we live in a culture right now where we increasingly are becoming post-Christian. 
which means we are very close to a generation where they won't have a story of, I went to Sunday school and left a church. They will have a story of, I've never been to church. I really don't know the message of Jesus. And we are already in a place where in many cases, if you follow Jesus and take him seriously, it's seen as hostile or hateful. That as you follow Jesus, we're no longer at a place where we are a majority. We no longer have leverage. We're in a place that is increasingly post-Christian. And I'm telling you, that is an incredible opportunity to love your neighbor. And in fact, we know from history that every time the church was marginalized in culture, the church was perfectly positioned to influence culture, but not because of politics, God help us. Not because we are a moral majority, not because we have leverage and a platform so that we can coerce and move people in that direction, but the church is perfectly positioned to influence culture when we take our rightful place at the bottom with no influence and no platform because the thing that we have that influences and changes culture is the name of Jesus, that at that name, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, and in that name, there is salvation and rescue that can change neighbors and families and cities, and it can change the world. And one time in history, it did, because this is what they understood. Guys, we are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. Jesus, when he gave this talk, the Greek word was, we are strategic. We are a strategically placed light. We are a strategically placed city on a hill. And I know you think it's random because you followed that guy to another city and then he dumped you. You are strategically placed right where you are. I know it seems random because it was the only job available and you can't wait to get out of it. You have been strategically placed. I know that you're at a place where you wanted to go away, but now it's junior college and you have to stay in this place and you don't really want to stay here. I'm telling you, you are a strategically placed city on a hill. You're there for a reason. I know it seems random. I know you wouldn't have chosen the divorce. I know you lost your home. I know you're in a neighborhood you don't want to be in. You are the light of the world. You are a strategically placed city on a hill. You are a carrier of the stewardship of the name of Jesus. You are a minister and a messenger of reconciliation and you are to take the baton of this message of restoration and rescue and salvation and hope that is only found in Jesus. There is no other name. And there may be no other person to bring that name to the people that God has placed you around and strategically placed in your path as a minister and a messenger of the greatest message and event that has happened in all of human history. You are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. And we know from history that it works because a small band of people that had no influence and no platform and no leverage and no moral majority, they changed the world. And all they knew was we serve a God of resurrection. He walked out of a grave alive. What do we have to be afraid of? And we have this one command, and it's all we need, even if we didn't have another verse. Because I've understood God's love for me, I want to love God. And the only way to do that is to love my actual neighbor. And so they prayed for boldness. So what if somehow, what if we recaptured that? Here's what it looks like, and I'm just going to end with this question that we've looked at every week, but I'm going to add a word. What does it mean to boldly love my neighbor? What does boldly loving my neighbor demand? And it's almost embarrassing 
Because I could tell you a story about another country where persecution is happening in this moment. I could, I could read more stories from first century followers of Jesus, but that's not our context. And so where we are at, and it's kind of embarrassing, but we just need to take baby steps. What is boldly loving our neighbor demand? And just a couple things that we're going to close. Boldly loving your neighbor means stepping out of your comfort zone and gathering around the table. Because the invisible is made visible here. And it's no longer about God, are we good? God's like, we're good. If you have a relationship with me, my love is never ending. But if you want to really follow me, stop looking up and look around. This is where it's happening. And so we're going to gather around the grill. We're going to have a play date with our kids. We're going to move toward the uncomfortable neighbor. We're going to invite them in. We're going to have coffee together. But boldly loving means I'm going to take a step in their direction. And I'm going to redefine spirituality. And it doesn't happen by just sitting in a seat here. We're going to gather around the table. Boldly loving your neighbor because this is the opportunity that's in front of us means 30 seconds of courage to invite them to Easter. This unbelievable event that we have the stewardship of proclaiming and it has the power to alter people's eternity forever. And we don't know what hangs in the balance, but if we would take a step, it will open up doors, not just for them to attend. By experience, it will open up doors to begin a relationship with them. In many cases, to have a conversation with them that will last long beyond just a weekend attendance. But many next weekend will walk in here as skeptical and they will leave as sons and daughters of God. And they will leave with a relationship with Jesus because you had the courage to step out and be bold. And boldly loving your neighbor means you look for opportunities to say something about Jesus when it would be easier to say nothing. Like when was the last time that in a meaningful way that you dropped that name beyond the four walls of this building? You are a minister of reconciliation. You have been given the stewardship to carry the name. And I know all the pushback. Well, you, I, listen, I don't know a lot. That's fine. Well, you don't understand. I have so much baggage. Of course you do. Well, I, I'm such a hypocrite. Of course you are. In fact, just lead with that. In fact, that's, that's one of the best places to start. Hey, listen, I just want you to know, I don't know a lot so I can connect you with somebody. And I have so much baggage that I'm not going to go into here because it's going to be awkward. And I am such a hypocrite. But let me tell you about Jesus. Just lead with that story because that's all we've got. And it's not complicated. I've got to end, but this is the good news. This is the gospel for all of you who are so afraid. It is so simplistic that we stumble over it. Just carry this with you. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose. You believe, you receive. That's it. That's the gospel. Hey, Jesus died after living a perfect life and Jesus rose. And if you believe, you receive it. And then I put the verse that everybody knows, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, because maybe you went to a football game. John 3, 16. God loved the world so much that he gave his son and whoever believes and trusts him receives the gift of eternal life and receives the gifts of forgiveness. And it's that simple because it's based on his promises and what he did. And it's not based on your performance. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose. And if you trust him and if you believe in him, you receive. And that's the gospel. And you're a carrier of that message in that name. And as we end, I want to I just leave you with this number. And if you're listening somewhere, this is going to be different in your context. But those of you who are in the house, to just punctuate this. You live in a place right now with, within a few mile radius of where you sit and where I stand. There are 60 
5,000 people approximately who have never encountered the salvation and the rescue that's only found in the name of Jesus. And you're their neighbors. And you work with them. And your kids play together. And they live 100 yards away. And as I was, as I was finishing this and just looking over this these last couple days, I was feeling some of the same things that you feel. Like we, we all have stuff where we're going, God, why, why would you choose this? We all have people close to us who have diagnosis that, that aren't going to end well. And, and we think, God, you, you could have done something different. All of us have things that we're dissatisfied with. All of us are leaning in to go, God, why does it have to be this way? And as I was journaling two days ago, I just wrote this thought that is such a hope to me and is so life-giving to me. And it was just this thought. I'm not home yet. I'm not home yet. But one day I will be. And every injustice is going to become untrue. And every wrong is going to be rewired and it's going to be made right. And every tear is going to be wiped away. And every hurt is going to be handled. And every wrong is going to be made right. And the thing that I long for in my soul is the Garden of Eden all over again because I was created for that. And my Savior says, one day it will be. And one day you're coming home. And one day every wrong is going to be made right. And it gives me extraordinary hope and circumstances that I would not choose. And here's what I recognize in terms of why I've been placed on this planet. I need to point a bunch of people toward home. Because they're struggling with the same things you're struggling with and the doubts that you have. And what is the way forward and those wrestlings of this cannot be all there is. It's not all there is. You were created for the Garden of Eden. You were created for something that is so much better, and we are not home yet. And home and the way forward in terms of home and relationship with God, it is only found in Jesus. So what if today we started praying for boldness? And then what if we were willing to do something bold? As you go out, you were going to get one of these bracelets that we ran out of already, so we're going to have them available in two weeks but I want you to begin praying even now that on this bracelet, as a reminder, it says, hashtag CC around the table. And then it says, hashtag, as a reminder, 60,000, because that's where you live. And it's indented, and there's no white lettering, so you don't have to be embarrassed about it. We'll just take baby steps. But as a reminder of God, I want to be bold, and I want you to give me courage, and I want to move forward to take a step to actually be bold. And so here's how I want to end, and I've ended this way in all of our services today, that we're going to pray for boldness right now. And what I want to do is give you the opportunity to step out and do the first bold thing. And so over these weeks, if you've tracked with us, or maybe this is the first Sunday, and God is moving and doing something in your heart, and there's something in you that just says, Jesus, I want to follow you into this. And I want to begin to rearrange what I've thought in terms of following you. And I want to be bold and I want to step out toward them or toward him. And I want to take this step to be courageous. And you know what it is and it's going to be different for all of us. But God, help me to take this seriously. And God, help me to be bold even if it costs me with what you're calling me to do. And so we're going to pray for that right now. And if you at any level, God has moved in you in that way. And if he hasn't, you don't need to respond. But right now, I just want to ask you to stand. If, if your prayer is, God, I want you to give me boldness. God, I want to move forward in boldness. God, I want you to give me the courage to do what I know you're calling me to do. And I want to pray over you right now, all over our house. 
And again, if that's not you, just, just stay seated. And, and God, it, it's a journey in following Jesus. So this may not be where you're at in your journey. But we're going to pray. And I, I can't tell you how serious I am about this, even for those of you who are part of our church. It's going to change the way we pray. It's going to change how we move forward. And I just want to say this to you before we close. You are the light of the world. You are a strategically placed city. You have been placed where you have been placed for a reason. And I don't know if you've thought about this. Your birth date and your death date have been strategically placed in this generation where you are to have influence for the only name that matters. And I think that light starts to light up darkness and change our city and invite God to stretch out his arm to do the miraculous the moment we are not so ridiculously afraid. And so all over this house, I want to pray for you right now in this moment. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. And I thank you for your gospel. And I thank you that it is so simple. It continues to change hearts and lives from the youngest person to the oldest in any culture, across any language, and across any barrier. And the salvation and the rescue and the return to the Garden of Eden and our hope for a better day is rooted in the fact that there is no other person and name that's offering that other than the name of Jesus. And God, in this moment, I don't know the application for all of us, but I pray for boldness. And I pray for courage for us individually, and I pray for it for us as a gathering. And I pray that whatever you are leading us toward right now, whoever you are leading us toward right now, you would give us what we need that is way beyond us. But here's what we know. In, urge, in order to have courage, we need to do something courageous. And so move in us by the weight and the power of your love to compel us to move out of rows and out of Bible studies and out of prayer times. All of those are important. And to move toward other people around the table and to love them toward Jesus and be willing to proclaim the name of Jesus. And God, we believe and I believe that even through this gathering, you are going to shake the foundation of our city. And you are going to turn it upside down. And we are going to reach thousands with the name and the message of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I proclaim that in faith, and Lord, our expectations, even in this moment, match the size of the God that we have been invited into to have relationship with. And so do your thing, but start individually with us today. God, give us boldness. And we pray this in the saving, in the redeeming, in the reconciling name of Jesus who is able. Amen.